My friends, we are about to embark on the most odious, the most evil, the most diabolical scheme of my illustrious career. A crime to top all crimes. A crime that will live in infamy. <laughs> From the brain that brought you the big Ben Caper, the head that made headlines in every newspaper, and wondrous things like the Tower Bridge job, that cunning display that made Londoners sob. Now comes the real tour de force. <laughs> Tricky and wicked, of course. My earlier crimes were fine for their times, but now that I'm at it again, an even grimmer pod has been castering in my great criminal <laughs> brain. Oh, Radigan. Podcastigan. Podcastigan. <laughs> the rest fall behind. Podcastigan. Podcastigan. The world's greatest criminal mind. See, this is the thing. I couldn't. It took me some thinking to decide where in the song I wanted to put it. I had no right, question right. which song I was going to do because mm-hmm. it's my favorite. Yeah, it's the best villain song in a Disney movie. Let's talk about this good movie. Yep. Everybody and welcome to me, Mom and the Mouse, a podcast about the joy of watching cartoons with your family. <laughs> We're watching every film in the Disney animated canon and talking about how it was made, what it means, and why we love it or don't. <laughs> uh, my name is Isaac Coleman, and I'm joined as always by my mother, Rue Coleman. Hello, I am not a rat. Good to know, I'm also <laughs> not a rat. <laughs> Good. Um, and I'm not going to do my bad Vincent Price impersonation. Am I okay, Vincent Price impersonation? I won't sell myself short for the whole thing. <laughs> but what I do want to do is give a special shout out to our editor, Brad Murray at Oak Studios. Thanks for all the work that you do. You know, no one could have a higher opinion of you than I have. And I think you're a slimy, contemptible sewer rat. <laughs> just kidding, Brad. Just quote in the movie like we do. Please don't leave us. We need you so much. <laughs> Amen. This week on the program, we're continuing the Bronze Era with 1986's The Great Mouse Detective, directed by John Musker, Ron Clements, Dave Meikner, I believe, and Bernie Mattinson. Uh, but Musker and Clements, of course, are the, the really important two guys in that lineup. And then uh, Bernie Mattinson. Well, he is an interesting guy, Bernie Mattinson, because he is the longest serving employee of the Walt Disney Company ever. He started in 1953 and he is still working for Disney. Wow. He is still contributing to stuff. Uh, I mean, his last credit to date was Ralph Breaks the Internet, but uh, apparently he's still around. He's still doing storyboards for things. That's pretty surprising. And then uh, I, I don't know much about Dave Meikner, I'll be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure he's he's a good guy, too. I mean, he contributed to this, this good movie. He apparently died in 2018. Uh, he was 85. So, you know, that happens, unfortunately. He was an animator. He worked on a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I'll explain why this movie had to have four direct. I almost did it again. I almost said, I'll explain. Why this- <laughs> and once you start, you just can't stop. But I'll explain it's why this true. movie had four directors. But first, Mom, what does this movie mean to you? Well, I never got to see this movie when it first came out. We never had a pre-recorded VHS of it. 
I think I probably saw it first at my grandma's house. They probably owned the VHS at some point. But we also might have had a like recorded off the TV version that I could watch when I was growing up. It was released on home video in 92. Yeah. So, you know, I'd have been in high school. I wouldn't have had the opportunity to watch it a ton. But I know I did see it before you were born. (laughs) And I always pretty much liked it. I remembered hearing that it was bad before I saw it. Like people going, oh, it's not that great. I don't remember who was saying this, right? Mm -hmm. But then when I watched it, I was pleasantly surprised. And it was kind of a, why didn't I ever see this before? (laughs) I do own the first book by Eve Titus. It's the great mouse detective movie cover version of Basil of Baker Street. Boo. I I have railed on Twitter before in the past about how much I hate uh, covers for books that do the movie timer, even in this case where it's a good movie. It didn't change the movie, the book title. Like the book is still called Basil of Baker Street, but it has on the cover the art from the movie. But then inside the book, it has all the original artwork. I just got this book at a used book sale somewhere. So it was not anything that I, you know, went seeking. It was just I was at a used book sale picking up anything that looked interesting. Unfortunately, I haven't read it in a long time, so I don't remember all the details, but I did not ever know until today that it was a series. (laughs) A series of five books. Yes, indeed. Yeah, I kind of feel like I had a similar relationship to you. I think this is an undersung Disney movie, although it, it's maybe starting to to find a bit of a resurgence uh, in popularity. Part of that was because they just didn't release it in many places and they didn't give it a marketing budget. Like yeah. they kind of set it up for failure. And by they, I mostly mean Michael Eisner. Well, you know, Black Cauldron was supposed to be the big one and this was supposed to be the, the little one. And instead, <laughs> reverse. Right. Exactly. But yeah, I I know I saw it as a kid uh, probably a a few times because like I definitely remember I was fairly young when your parents got their dog Toby and I was like, oh, that's Toby from the Great Mouse Detective. Yes. And even like I I always thought I could call to mind when that happened, like sit Toby. Like I definitely remembered this movie. And then for whatever reason, I was trying to remember. I don't know when I watched it and I was older and I was like, I really like this movie. This is quite an enjoyable movie. And this is definitely one of the Disney films I've watched the most as an adult. I I feel myself going back to it like when it's like, I just want to watch a Disney thing (laughs) because it's super fun. It has such a good villain. It has a couple of good songs. Yep. It's just like a, a classic adventure with characters I all like. And like it's 70 minutes long and then you're out of there. So it's it's <laughs> perfect for if you want like a quick hit of Disney. Yep. I feel like it and I watch it a lot for that reason. And I really enjoy. I mean, for me, this is probably a top 10 Disney movie. Wow. Uh, Disney animated canon movie. You know, even like because of the the way in which we're recording our our scheduling for this particular episode, I had to do all my research beforehand. And I was like, (laughs) I'm just spoiling the movie for myself, right? Because I'm reminding myself of everything that happens in it. And watching it last night, I was like, nope, I'm still having a blast. Yeah, I just really enjoy The Great Mouse Detective. (laughs) And Radigan, probably my favorite Disney villain. Maybe later I'll say somebody else's, but I think I'm willing to put that <laughs> line in the sand now. He's he is my he is to me as Prince John is to dad up to us both playing those characters and villainous all the time. Although I've never won as Radigan because he's a badly <laughs> 
designed character and it sucks <laughs> that I will still play as him because I love him so. And the professor deserves the best. And he has a big swooshy cape figurine. <laughs> so we talked a bit about the genesis of this movie in the previous episode, The Black Cauldron. Uh, it was greenlit by Ron Miller during his brief uh, time at Disney. Uh, brief time as the head of Disney, I should say. Uh, it is indeed based on the book series Basil of Baker Street by Eve Titus. Now, uh, uh, can you maybe give some more background on these books? The original one was published in 58. So it had been around for a while before they decided to do a Disney movie of it. She was basically doing, you know, like fan fiction of Sherlock Holmes, you could say, not that they would have called it that back then, but taking the story of Sherlock Holmes and doing mouse characters of it that are like following Sherlock Holmes, the Sherlock Holmes of the mouse world, Basil of Baker Street. And she did name Basil after Basil Rathbone, the actor who played Sherlock Holmes in so many movies and things. Who we talked about in our Wind of the Willows episode. Yeah. And so many of the characters, their names are very much based on characters from Sherlock Holmes. And even some of the mysteries are based on Sherlock Holmes stories. But, you know, like Dr. David Q. Dawson, Dr. John H. Watson. One thing I know about these books is that they're like fans of Sherlock Holmes. Oh, yeah. Basil has deliberately styled himself. Yes. After Sherlock Holmes and like collects newspaper clippings and like pieces of his violin. I did skim a little bit of the book and it starts off that Basil and Dawson are going to Baker Street all the time to listen to Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson as they discuss their cases. And Basil is trying to style himself after him. And they finally decide they are going to move into the cellar of Baker's 221 Baker Street so that they don't have to travel so far in the snow and, you know, weather all the time just so they can hear him. So not just they live in the cellar, they get their whole mouse city to move into the cellar. <laughs> yes, there's a whole mouse community called Holmstead. Yeah. And they all live under Sherlock Holmes's house. And uh, as I understand, the books are much more kind of about the mouse society and how it intersects with the human society. Yeah. All stuff that I think they wisely throw out for this movie. Uh, I'm sure the books are good. I've not read them to, to my memory. As I say, I didn't really love this movie as a kid, so I probably wouldn't have sought it out. Mm -hmm. Last week with Black Cauldron, we talked about how they kept some of the wrong things and threw out some of the wrong things. This feels more like they did the right thing in adapting it for a Disney movie, which, as I understand, is basically kept the names and the idea of what if Mouse Sherlock Holmes had threw everything else in the trash. <laughs> but not just Mouse Sherlock Holmes, Mouse everybody, right? Because they do that... In the movie as well, you know, Radigan is like, you know, Moriarty and there is a mouse queen who is exactly the same age as the human queen. But so, you know, they, they acquired the rights to this. Apparently, as I understand, it actually started with they were like, what if we did animal Sherlock Holmes like we did animal Robin Hood and then, oh, there's a book that's already is that. Well, let's acquire it. And then they had the same problem with it that they had with uh, Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, 
which is we just did a mouse movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, people can't have two mouse movies, which is funny because <laughs> not only is there the rescuers in Secrets of Nim, but the same year this came out, an American Tale comes out and becomes the highest grossing uh, animated movie of all time up to that point. Right. So, no, the Mouse Mania was sweeping the nation. But uh, again, so like Card Walker and the, the previous heads of Disney and Disney Animation didn't want to approve it. But Ron Miller, he comes in, he's trying to approve more things. Uh, so this gets approved along with the Black Cauldron. And we talked last week about how this became the thing that the cool kids were working on. <laughs> people who didn't like it as much. And uh, all of the people who are willing to just kiss the executive behinds, they got to stay on Black Cauldron and make a movie this very bad. I'm going to read a bit now from Disney War by James B. Stewart. This is everyone's favorite part of the podcast. Isaac reads a book. (laughs) Obviously, we've talked about Ron Miller leaves Eisner and Katzenberg and Roy E. Disney and Frank Wells step in. We talked about previously how, you know, at one point, Ron Miller's ousted by Eisner, Katzenberg and Wells and Roy E. Disney takes over Disney animation. And so that's what we're talking about here. Right. At about the same time as the disastrous screening of the Black Cauldron, which we talked about last week, Roy invited Eisner, Wells, and Katzenberg to a viewing of storyboards from a new project called Basil of Baker Street. Two dissident animators who had been cut from the Cauldron team, Ron Clements and John Musker, both former altar boys from the Midwest, which is a very strange detail to just throw into the middle of this sentence. It has nothing to do with anything. Had been developing a story based on a book about mice living under Sherlock Holmes's London flat. They'd used Ron Miller as the model for the villain, Professor Radigan, who is big, hulking, handsome, and personable. And Miller had been the film's producer until he was abruptly dismissed. Clements, bearded and redheaded, and Musker, taller and more talkative, set up nearly 50 storyboards that snaked through the corridor and in and out of rooms in the old animation building. (laughs) Unlike live-action features, Disney's animated films had rarely started with scripts. Storyboards had scores of cartoon-like drawings that mapped out the story, and dialogue was added later by the animators as they drew. Eisner, especially, seemed puzzled by this. We should begin with a script, just like with our other movies, he insisted. So again, Eisner and Katzenberg still don't understand animation (laughs) and don't seem to want to understand animation. As they wandered along the storyboards, neither Roy nor the animators could figure out if the executives were really following the story. Eisner startled them at one point by wondering aloud whether a song in a bar that had already been scored by composer Henry Mancini could be turned over to pop star Michael Jackson. (laughs) Clements and Musker froze, their dismay evident. Finally, Eisner said, part of your job is to talk me out of bad ideas. (laughs) Eisner found Basil cute but confusing. He liked the Sherlock Holmes angle. He'd produced the young Sherlock Holmes while at Paramount, but he thought it lacked dramatic structure. The traditional three-act beginning, middle, and end that had served him so well when judging scripts at Paramount. But he and Katzenberg agreed that, at the very least, it would not be another Black Cauldron. Roy pressed for a green light, pointing out that Disney risked losing its most talented animators if they didn't have something to work on. (laughs) Eisner asked the animators how much time they needed. Two years, Clement said. I want it in one. How much will it cost? About $24 million. Nope, Eisner said. $12 million. In the end, they got the green light and a budget of $10 million. So they really slashed the budget on this thing. But what's important also reading from a different source now 
Uh, this is reported in 35 Years of Basil, the Super Detective Mouse from the News 24. Uh, but this quote has been shared in several places. Katzenberg apparently, like Eisner was really thinking about shutting down this movie and shutting down the animation division. Yeah. Uh, for reasons that we've talked about pretty extensively at this point, mainly it just wasn't making money. And Eisner's whole job as he steps in as, you know, uh, the CEO and of Disney is to make this very much failing company profitable again. Uh, and so, you know, he's really trying to expand into new areas like home video and doing more things with the parks and opening the Disney stores. And at the same time, he's, you know, trying to shut down the stuff that doesn't work. Uh, and various ideas were floated during this time. Obviously, should we just shut down animation? You mentioned last week the like 101 Dalmatians revival mm -hmm. coming back to theaters, 101 Dalmatians that was super financially successful, which some people in the company saw as see, this is proof that people love our animated films. And Eisner was like, should we just keep re-releasing the old movies every seven <laughs> years? Like, do we need to make new animated films if this is just working? Yeah. You know, maybe we won't even release our movies on home video to drive up the value of theatrical screenings. Eventually, they realized that it would make more money to release those things on home video, albeit with the artificial scarcity of the vault stuff that sucked. And yeah. then continue making new movies. But uh, they're, they're discussing what to do. And the animation studio is also moved off of the Disney lot at this point. So a lot of people are working on this movie and, and working for Disney animation are like, oh, we're just going to lose our jobs. We're going to be shut down. <laughs> but at the same time, because Eisner and Katzenberg are so busy in other areas, you know, Eisner wants to shut down this movie. And what Katzenberg says is we have 175 people working and we are paying them every day to come to work. We're going to pay them whether they make the movie or not. So I guess we have to do it. <laughs> so even though they slashed their budget and their time, they were also like they didn't care about this. And so this finally, after like three movies of promising that this is what's going to happen, this is the movie where the new crop of Disney animators sort of symbolically led by Musker and Clements they finally get to do their thing. They finally get to make a movie with minimal studio meddling. Mm -hmm. There were, you know, there were these famous suggestions like let's have Michael Jackson do the song uh, in the rat's nest uh, or let's have Madonna do it at one point, uh, which would have been also disastrous. <laughs> and of course, there's the famous like changing of the name. But by and large, the animators finally got to do what they wanted to do. And I think that comes through. You could see how this is the darker movie they've been wanting to make in some regards, but it still feels like a Disney movie and like a movie that knows what it is. I do like that story about how the changing of the name inspired that interoffice memo with all the other silly names. Yes, I must read this memo. <laughs> so originally the movie was going to be called Basil of Baker Street because that was the name of the book. But Eisner got freaked out by the failure of another Sherlock Holmes movie around the same time. And well, it was, was like, young Sherlock Holmes that didn't do so well. The one that he'd started. Yes. Which interestingly enough, young Sherlock Holmes is the first movie that Pixar worked on. It has a fully computer-generated animated character that was done by Pixar. Yep. 
before it was even really Pixar. So that's that's an interesting connection, especially considering the importance of CGI in this movie. So, you know, Eisner starts worrying, oh, it's too Sherlock Holmesy and it's too British. And he threatened to have all of the actors redubbed with American accents, uh, which would have been bad. Oh, that would have been terrible. And, you know, that, oh, people aren't going to like it and whatever. He panics in a few ways. There's the poster for this movie that shows uh, Basil in a terrible looking blue suit and not his Sherlock <laughs> Holmes outfit. And yes, he changes the title from Basil of Baker Street, which he thought was too British, to The Great Mouse Detective. And so then some animator. Now, this is attributed to different people, but we don't really know who sent this. <laughs> some animator sent this from Peter Schneider, who was the vice president of Disney Animation at this time, who was universally loathed. And from everything I've read about him in Disney War, just scum, just a complete scum human being. Mm -hmm. um, but this was supposedly from him. And it says, along with the new title for Basil of Baker Street, it has been decided to rename the entire library of animated classics. The new titles are as follows. Seven Little Men Help a Girl. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. The Wooden Boy Who Became Real. Pinocchio. Color and Music. Fantasia. The Wonderful Elephant Who Could Really Fly. Dumbo. I feel like that title's almost longer than the movie. I also feel like that title is almost one that Disney would have done. We talked about <laughs> all those live action movies that are like the X that was unusual. Right. And likewise, The Little Deer Who Grew Up. A very accurate description of Bambi. <laughs> The Girl with the See-Through Shoes. Cinderella. That's the one that I have to stop and be like, what? A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> the Girl in the Imaginary World. Alice in Wonderland. The Amazing Flying Children. <laughs> Peter Pan. Two Dogs Fall in Love. Lady and the Tramp. The Girl Who Seemed to Die. <laughs> I love that title for Sleeping Beauty. <laughs> the Girl Who Seemed to Die. <laughs> <laughs> I like that too. Puppies Taken Away. <laughs> 101 Dalmatians. They should have called it 15 Spotted Puppies Stolen. <laughs> there you go. I just, you know, just imagine Puppies Taken Away. My favorite Disney movie. Uh, the Boy Who Would Be King, obvious. Sword in the Stone, yes. A Boy, A Bear, and a Big Black Cat. <laughs> this one also, I had to think about The Jungle Book. But you're like, A Boy, A Bear, and a Big Black Cat. Okay, but... Maybe my favorite one, which is just Aristocats. <laughs> oh, wait, where's... I'm on a different list, uh, apparently... They just have Aristocats as Aristocats? Yes, they just have Aristocats <laughs> as Aristocats because the joke is that, that that name was already so on the nose that you can't make it worse. Oh, that's terrible. Yes. Robin Hood with animals. Which is <laughs> another favorite. Yes, yes, it is. Just adding two words. Uh, to my save a girl. Yes, the rescuers. A fox and a hound are friends. <laughs> Uh, it should have been the way like frog and toad, you know, fox and the dog are friends. <laughs> they should have just called it a fox and a hound are friends and then they shouldn't have released the movie. Just print that title. The Evil Bonehead. That's my favorite, actually. The Black Cauldron. I love it. The Evil Bonehead. And of course, our latest classic destined to win the hearts of the American public, The Great Mouse Detective. Now, I love that memo. It's so funny. It's yes. so mean. Here's my hot take. Great Mouse Detective is a way better title for this movie. Oh. Basil of Baker Street, number one, Americans are going to pronounce it wrong. And it is kind of boring. I just don't like 
titles that are just a character's name. Yeah. It's one thing when it's Cinderella, because mm-hmm. like we know what Cinderella is and the story is called Cinderella. Right. Like, it's, it's a fairy tale. But it's yeah. like, you know, there's the new Pixar movie, Luca. Mm-hmm. And it's like, who's Luca? What's Luca? What are, you know, even Moana, it's like, well, who's Moana? Why should I be excited about Moana? <laughs> it's like, it's Moana. And I'm like, what does she do? What's, what's her deal? Right. It's the same thing of like, all right, so here's the title of this movie. There's a guy, he lives at a place. <laughs> I think The Great Mouse Detective is actually a, a better, more interesting title, especially because of The Great. Yes. You're not, it's not, listen, you've seen a mouse detective before. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't Bernard and Miss Bianca screwing it up. This guy's great. <laughs> That's just my opinion. I, I think it's a, a better title. Um, and then it got like released under a whole bunch of different names. In some places, it is Basil of Baker Street or Basil the Great Mouse Detective or The Adventures of the Great Mouse Detective, which is very bad. That one's bad. Yeah, I, I assume the Great Mouse Detective will have adventures. <laughs> yeah, you'd be better off if you're going to add the adventures of the adventures of Basil of Baker Street. But that's so long and there's two ofs. Like, yeah. I, get what you, I agree. It's better than the adventures of the Great Mouse Detective. But no, it's all bad. I think Great Mouse Detective is fine. So they're working on this movie. And basically, yeah, they get to do whatever they want as long as they keep it under budget. And they actually did end up spending $14 million, not 10. Still less than what they originally said it would cost. Yep. And they did pretty much get it done in a year. And it it has kind of a scrappy energy. That's one thing I like about this movie. It is super tight. Mm-hmm. And each scene is doing like three different things. Yeah. I was thinking about last night how none of the songs go uninterrupted because they're like, we can't just play a song. We have so little <laughs> money for animation that we have to be singing and we have to stop for plot like mm-hmm. or talk over the song. Like something must be going on during each of the songs. Even though the songs are frequently, well, not all of them, but like the Greatest Criminal Mind song is advancing the plot even. Right. That's the thing. The song has to advance the plot and we have to stop to advance the plot more. Right, right. I like it. Like it a lot. Musker and Clements, by the way, we've been referencing them. If you don't know, uh, Musker and Clements are uh, the directors of The Little Mermaid and Hercules and Treasure Planet and Aladdin um, and Princess and the Frog and Moana. They are very important figures, although... They're mostly collaborators. They're not Mm -hmm. like, you know, when we talk about Brad Bird, like, you know, he is very much an auteur and those movies are his movies. Musker and Clements, what they're really good at is like playing along and playing the game. And I think they are good directors and animators and storytellers in their own right. But they're they're not the same kind as, again, like Brad Bird, who's kind of a controlling maniac. (laughs) They're very collaborative and that's part of why they are, you know, among the few great animators and animation directors of their class who actually stay at Disney. Um, And that is why they get all of the money and success. So the reason that they added the other two directors, uh, Meichner and Mattinson, Mm -hmm. is because they were making the movie so fast, we had to have four directors directing different scenes and nobody was checking each other's work. <laughs> like, genuinely. Just go quick. The other really interesting thing about the production of this movie is, of course, that it is the first Disney film to have uh, computer-assisted animation and computer-generated imagery because of layout artist Mike Peraza, 
who was a big fan of the 1979 film The Castle of Cagliostro, which I don't know if you remember, Mom, because you were incredibly sick, but you have seen. Oh, have I? Yes, we actually, you were quite sick at the time and you were not happy that I was uh, making you watch, uh, that the movie I suggested we watch was a movie in Japanese with Americans, with, you know, English subtitles. Ah. You were like, I, you were having a hard time with it because that's how <laughs> sick you were. But we have seen uh, Castle of Cagliostro uh, directed, the first movie directed by Hayao Miyazaki, of course, the legendary uh, Japanese animator and uh, animation director from the Lupin the Third series of movies. And uh, it has a film, a, a climactic scene that involves characters in amidst giant turning gears in a clock tower. Very cool scene. The funny thing is, the first time I watched that movie, I was like, this reminds me of Great Mouse Detective. And it turns <laughs> out not without merit. Uh, it was inspired the other way around. So Peraza was like, what if the final confrontation, instead of just taking place on the hands of Big Ben, actually went inside Big Ben and they crashed through the face and there's the scary gears. And Musker was like, that's a great idea. Can you do it super quick and super cheap? <laughs> but so Peraza went uh, with his wife and I think a very small team to London and took photos of Big Ben from a mouse eye view. And it's so interesting hearing him talk about like the type of video and, and photographic footage they were taking because he was very much a perfectionist about this stuff. And he was talking <laughs> about like, he wanted to get the texture of the hands of Big Ben, right? Like wow. he wanted to get the material right. Mm -hmm. uh, he has some quote about like, this is such a famous landmark. Even if you've never been there, you'll know if we get it wrong. Like you'll just be able to sense, you know, that if we're just making it up. <laughs> um, and so he was very kind of obsessed with getting it really, really Accurate, obviously, you know, changing some things for animation and for the sake of the scene is necessary, right. but like really trying to make it feel real. Mm -hmm. And so he he took all this footage, you know, very quickly. Again, you they had one trip. They completed their research in one hour. Uh, they returned to the feature animation building where animators Phil Nibblink and Ted Gilo, I believe, were designing the interior of Big Ben as wireframe graphics on a computer, which they then printed out, and those were then traced onto animation cells, and then the colors and characters were added to the movie. And so they would basically play this wireframe footage on a screen, and then they were like drawing with dry erase marker on the computer screen, like, okay, so the mouse will be here at this point, and then they'd move it along. They basically created a full 3D model so that they could trace over it because like that was easier than trying to eyeball, you know, the complicated 3D interior of Big Ben. But you don't actually see any CGI animation in the movie itself, which is why this is technically computer assisted animation Ah, um, because it's all traced. Right? Uh, right. What you're seeing in the film was all drawn by hand, but it's, it's traced, traced over, over computers. Mm -hmm. There's a really funny story where Nibblink and Gylo like as I said, it took them months to design the interior and it was all wireframe graphics. It took a very, very long time to render because computer animation and CGI does take a very long time to render. And now, of course, animated studios have giant render farms with a zillion servers. Right. But they're just doing this on one computer. So they left the door open every night because the computer would get so hot while <laughs> it was rendering overnight. 
And one day, a friendly janitor who thought he was helping out closed the door. Oh, no. They came back the next day and the heat had destroyed the computer, completely destroyed the program. Fortunately, they'd been printing everything out, right? They were printing everything they were rendering because they were literally moving it frame by frame, (laughs) 24 frames a second, and printing out each frame for the animators to trace. So they had to work backwards from those printings, program everything back into the computer and start over, Uh. which sounds... Like a nightmare, and yet is somehow (laughs) still easier than just doing what Miyazaki and his team did with Cagliostro, which is like, eyeball it, figure it out by hand. Right, Just be a perfectionist lunatic like Miyazaki Well, they didn't have time. And you're absolutely right. They did not have time to do that. But this did add time to it, I believe. So, yeah, so this is the first uh, Disney movie that really extensively uses, like, CGI and that has, you know, that specific process. Mm -hmm. And I think that's all I have to say about the animation. It was released. It was a critical success. It was a very modest hit, um, but it did, you know, make its money back and and then some. Yes, important. Roughly a little more than doubled it once you factor in marketing costs and stuff. And people will debate, like, is this the movie that saved Disney animation? Right. Probably not. Oliver and Company was already in production at this time. Disney historians might be a little annoyed that I have not brought up the gong show, the famous Katzenberg Eisner gong show. I'm going to (laughs) bring that up in the Oliver and company episode. That's why I'm not talking about it now, but like that was already in production. And, you know, Roy E. Disney was really protective of animation. It might have been okay, but the fact that this was a success certainly didn't hurt. Right. And it showed that like Musker and Clements could work to strict deadlines and strict budgets and produce a successful movie. Uh, which is why they will get to do The Little Mermaid, which is the actual film that saved Disney animation for sure. It's interesting that they managed to come out with a mouse movie the same year as American Tale. You wonder if was there, you know, knowledge going on between because there's been so many times where studios two different studios release a very similar movie very close together. And you're like, ah, this is the one that is copying this other one. But I wasn't sure if there was any actual copying going on for this or if it just worked out like that. Right. Like how Katzenberg, when he leaves Disney, Pixar has already started on A Bug's Life and he takes all that stuff to DreamWorks and they release ants. Uh-huh. There's I mean there's speculation to that effect. I wouldn't be surprised if there's some collaboration like obviously they worked with Don Bluth and all of his guys, so why wouldn't they continue to have friendly conversations mm-hmm. about how much it sucks to work at Disney? Nothing nothing concrete, you know, there's there's nothing proven, but I I'm sure they were talking about similar stuff. Though American Tale made the more money. It made more money, it cost a lot more money, it has the backing of Spielberg, mm-hmm. uh, who at this point is just, you know, the the god of movies. He, he can do whatever <laughs> he wants in the well, basically forever he can do whatever he wants, but especially in the eighties. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the cast. Alrighty then. They apparently spent a lot of time casting for Basil, of course, Mm -hmm. of Baker Street, Mm -hmm. the great mass detective himself. But when Barry Ingham started auditioning, he got the role in six minutes. Like he just (laughs) did six minutes of the audition and they're like, you're it. And supposedly some of his audio from that audition 
even made it into the movie. Which is kind of funny. Yes, Barry Ingham was an English actor. He mostly performed on stage. He was in a few movies. Uh, and I do think he's great in this. I'm yeah. not surprised that he got it so quickly. He He's really good. Val Betton is David Q. Dawson. He is... He was an American. I mean, he's still alive, but he's retired. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's 98 years old. Not for nothing. Good for him. Right. And uh, he he's an, he was an American actor who was known for having a really good British accent. <laughs> in addition to being Dawson in this, he is also the Sultan in all of these spinoffs and TV shows of Aladdin, but not the original. <laughs> That's funny. Apparently, Ron Clements was a fan of his television show, The Storyteller from the 50s, and was like, this is the guy. This guy will be great. (laughs) Olivia is Suzanne Polachek, who basically they just were like, let's cast a, uh, you know, a a girl from Glasgow who will have an authentic accent. And they did. She's not really an actor, you know, (laughs) but she's fine in this. Yep. Alan Young is Flaversham, Hiram Flaversham, and he is, of course, Scrooge McDuck. Yes, I believe. Is he Scrooge McDuck in everything or just in the Mickey's Christmas Carol? Before this, he had only been Scrooge McDuck in the Mickey's Christmas Carol, but he's like he's taking over. I think after this, he's Scrooge, which means that he's Scrooge McDuck in DuckTales, right? Because doesn't that happen after this? Yep. Oh, yeah. It's pretty audible in this. I mean, he is doing a different performance, a different character. But once you know. Oh, yeah, it it, it definitely sounds like Scrooge. <laughs> Frank Welker, I believe this is the first opportunity we've had to talk about him. One of the most storied voice actors of all time with over 860 credits. Wow. Ladies and gentlemen, just ridiculous. Um, He's been so many things. What can you say? Anything you've heard like with your ears, probably Frank <laughs> Welker was a voice in and he does a lot of noises as well. In this, he plays uh, Toby and I believe he also plays the cat, uh, Lucretia. Felicia. Felicia, sorry, Felicia. Um, because he just makes cat and dog noises like that's <laughs> that's his gig. And of course, you have to talk about Candy Candido, who plays Fidget. But yeah. <laughs> More importantly, we have to talk about Vincent Price. Ah, so good. He's perfect. He, for me, is Prince John level casting. Um, Apparently he was cast because they were watching the 1950 comedy film Champagne for Caesar Mm -hmm. to study Ronald Coleman's performance as a possible model for Basil. Uh, Because they they would do this a lot. We've talked about some of their cinematic inspirations. And Vincent Price is a major role in that movie. And as they were watching it, they were like, Vincent Price would be so good as Radigan. <laughs> uh, and they cast him and he apparently was delighted to do it. And for anyone who doesn't know, Vincent Price was an actor who is best known for horror films and uh, especially like cheap, 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 cheap horror films <laughs> and cheap genre films. Yep. though he did a lot of other things. My impression of him is always someone who, I mean, I, the best way I can put it is that his final role was a Tim Burton movie, Edward Scissorhands. Great kind of final role to bow out on, by the way. And he is the perfect match for Tim Burton because he's like scary. He has some genuine malice to him, but in a way that's pretty kid palatable. Like if you're a 10 mm-hmm. year old, He's pitched just right for you because he's always a little he's always kind of winking at the camera. He has a sense of humor. He is scary. He could sometimes play true evil, but he he's charming as well. It's super Mm -hmm. charismatic and just, you know, incredibly enjoyable presence. 
in all of his movies and TV shows. And once again, the 1960s Batman TV show. (laughs) He did a lot of voice work also. Yes, he did. And again, I think he is just just totally, totally perfect for this. And I've I've, to my surprise, I've heard some people uh, complain about his role as I was doing research for this. Really? Especially. Well, the big complaint especially is that like he was such a skinny, wiry guy and his voice is so like kind of posh and, you know, right. Uh, or seen somewhat as that. And in this, you know, he's playing this big brutish rat monster thing. But that's the whole point. That's the joke. That's what's so good about it is that Radigan is this monster who is keeping himself contained. Mm-hmm. He's he's putting it all in a box. And Vincent Price is perfect because he can play all of that so well. Right. Both sides mm-hmm. of this character. I was surprised to discover that Candy Candido, um, we knew, knew he did the voice of Fidget in this, but they actually like sped up the recording so that it was pitched higher so that Fidget's voice is more squeaky than Candy Candido could actually do. (laughs) Right. And I didn't think about like, I've never known that or thought about it, but thinking about it now, it does make sense. If you think about Fidget's like tools, I got tools versus the tournament of the golden arrow. Right. But you know, I just assumed he changed his voice a little, but no, they actually sped it up. <laughs> um, this is also an early uh, performance by Tony Anselmo. He's just one of Red Against Thugs. But uh, pretty soon, I believe, oh no, actually, just the year before this, he uh, he took over Donald Duck ah. uh, the, as the official voice of Donald Duck. Mm-hmm. And Melissa Manchester uh, is the actual singer who got to be Miss Kitty Mouse. Yep. Um, she had just performed at the Oscars twice in a row. So, you know, she was well known and uh, she did Let Me Be Good to You. She wrote it and performed it. I think it's funny that they had some other song. Henry Mancini had written a song to go in this portion of the movie and they had already started animating it. But then they got Melissa Manchester to write a different song and they actually had to redo some of the animation to make it fit with the new song <laughs> because right. this is how they compromised with Eisner wanting somebody famous doing a song in the movie. Right. And then wanting someone who would fit the milieu and right. wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't just be going, wait a minute, that's Madonna. Right. Because that wouldn't make as much sense. But Melissa Manchester, she has a voice. I think she's really good in this. She is. I actually just watched the Muppet Show episode that she's on. I didn't even remember she guest starred on it. Just happened to come up and I'm like, hey, wait a minute. (laughs) She has a powerful voice. Yeah. Now, had Vincent Price done the Muppet Show yet? I think he had, right? Wasn't he season one? Yes, he had. I love his Muppet Show episode. I mean, I just love Vincent Price. For me... He's amazing. I love Vincent Price even, I think, before I really fell in love with Radigan. Mm -hmm. It's so good. Uh, We should talk about... You mentioned Henry Mancini, one of the great film composers. I love his music. Yeah, Baby Elephant Walk, the Pink Panther theme, Mm -hmm. so many classic... Uh, movie songs and he did write the two Radigan songs yeah uh, and he did the score which I have to say I'd never really thought of the score as being particularly good but today I was just listening to it on its own yeah I think the score is a bit buried by the movie and a bit rushed because this movie is so rushed yeah but listening to it on its own I was like this is really good I think this might be an underrated score yeah uh, or maybe I'm just so in the pocket for this movie that I, I just love all of it. <laughs> I think it's a good score. I mean, 
If I think of a movie and I can think of some of the score from it, I consider that a good score. Yep. Because there are movies I've seen tons of times and I can't remember hardly any of the score from it. And so I tend to think of those. They might be a good movie, but the score is like, eh. But if I can remember some of the score, then to me, that's a good score. (laughs) Shall we dive into the movie? We should do that. The movie starts London, 1897, we are told. And we're in foggy London town. Originally, this was a much longer, more involved opening that would have Big Ben chiming. And as it does, all the lights in the houses turn off like with the chime. But nope, cut it, cut it, cut it, cut it. You can't afford that. (laughs) I don't think that would have been necessary. I don't think it would have been either. Telling us it's London and then getting right into it. That's good. We zoom slowly in on a little mouse shop. Flaversham's Toys, little mouse sized shop. And we see a little girl, Olivia, getting her birthday present from her toy maker father. And it's a pretty little, like a music box, but a musical dancing figure. This is what I was begging for last week, where it's writing that is good enough and performances that are good enough that you care about the characters quickly. Oh, you do. You totally do. Like, Flavish, the toy that is made is really cool, and you're like, wow, Flaversham is a really cool toy maker. Right. He could probably make a big robot thing, and I would buy it. <laughs> um, and he seems like such a nice dad, and she's such a nice little girl, and mm-hmm. you can tell, like, they're kind of hard up for cash, but they're making it work. You know, people might be expecting me to make jokes about how Olivia is annoying, as I, as I so often do. But I really like Olivia. I think she's a totally successful character. Yeah, she's not the annoying one in this movie. <laughs> she has plenty of agency in her own life. And then, of course, somebody arrives at the door and breaks into the house. Olivia is hidden in the cupboard and the father is kidnapped. And Fidget is legit scary. I mean, he's got big old teeth and yellow eyes. Again, it's a little bit of that darkness. And an evil chuckle. Yeah, and like we're introduced to him with the peg leg scraping on the cobblestones. It's it's super quick, but it's effective. Yep. And then Olivia is like, oh, my daddy. Daddy, where are you? And you're like, oh, I feel for this little kid. And then the Mancini score kicks in and it's a little cheery to let you know, don't worry, kids, it's not going to be that scary. Yep. It's a very happy, upbeat song. And then we have the title music and some opening credits. So we have the, you know, the big title screen, Great Mouse Detective, and we get the voice actor credits and then some other, you know, like you would expect from a movie even today where you get a few basic credits, but not the big list. Right. And we will get closing credits in this one. Again, I think that's just the... The union rules had changed that you had to do closing credits for for Black Cauldron and for this and ongoing. Then we're uh, introduced to our narrator, Dr. David Q. Dawson, who tells us about himself a little bit. It's the eve of the Queen's Diamond Jubilee. Yes, which is her 60 years of reign. Which, uh, does that check out? It kind of, this movie feels like it takes place all in one night, but I suppose it's it's two days. I believe it's a couple of days, but it all seems to take place at night. We never see daytime. Right. So, but I'm pretty sure it takes a few, a couple of days. And we're getting all the fun stuff about the mouse versions of human things. It's yeah. a big carriage with a mouse carriage hanging off of it. Uh, and again, I, I see people complaining like, I don't understand how this mouse world works. Are the humans aware of the mouse world? Don't worry like, about it. <laughs> exactly. There's 
that, you know, I don't think this is a perfect movie. I think that I wouldn't mind the 90 minute version of this movie where they had time to explore some more things about the world and the characters and we got to spend more time with them. But yeah, I really don't need it. Like, I'm just like, OK, there's a mouse world, whatever. I don't care. Anyway, he gets off because he's looking he's looking for a place to stay. He's home from the wars and looking for yeah, he, he explains that he served in mouse Afghanistan, which yeah. is the most wild detail of this whole movie <laughs> to me. Yep. And he hears uh, some crying and he investigates and it's Olivia. She's crying because she's lost and she's just really cute. She just really is cute. She's cute. And you tr- you believe in her. You trust her. And she says she's trying to find Basil of Baker Street and she doesn't know how. And Dawson being a very kind hearted man. Mouse, I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know anyone named Basil, but I do know where Baker Street is. So I'll take you there. So they go. And again, it's the efficiency of this story where why is she looking for Basil Baker Street? She just heard of him somewhere. She just knew knows he's a good person to look for. She has a little like clipping. We don't need to explain that too much. And yep. again, this yep. scene like. It's establishing Olivia's sad. It's establishing that Dawson is a good guy. It's getting them together. It's getting them into the next scene. It's introducing the concept of Basil as this known detective, like just 20 different things, you know? Yes. And so they arrive at 221 and a half Baker Street. (laughs) Right. We actually see 221B Baker Street and the silhouette of Sherlock Holmes playing the violin. And then we scroll down to the bottom to see the mouse version. Uh, And we are introduced to and I mean, I say introduced to this is really the only scene she's in. It's Mrs. Judson. Yep. In in the book, Mrs. Judson is listed as there's a cast of characters at the beginning of the book, and she's the mousekeeper, <laughs> not the housekeeper. She's the mousekeeper. <laughs> Good bit for sure. I did want to ask. Uh, I forgot to do this earlier. I apologize. But more broadly, kind of as we're getting into this part of the movie, what's your relationship to like Sherlock Holmes in general? Oh, I have read a lot of Sherlock Holmes stories not all of them because there's a ton i actually bought one time one of those like collected sherlock holmes volumes and read it several times so i've always enjoyed reading sherlock holmes and other mystery stories like that i don't enjoy them as much now as i used to but yeah i mean they're still they're still good i i like sherlock holmes stories a lot the original books and stories some of them i like some of them i don't but like there's a lot of Sherlock Holmes movies I really love uh, and, and you know, other adaptations like I enjoy the Sherlock Holmes dynamic a lot. Mm-hmm. It's it's something that I often will come back to. It's it's kind of a comfort food yeah. thing for me. And I, I and so I really like it here. And I think the best Sherlock Holmes adaptations, even if you're doing a wild version just stick to the general like format of Sherlock Holmes. And I think this movie does that well. Yeah, there are a lot of good movies with takes on it that are that are quite enjoyable. I know it's been talked about to death, but I feel like the relevant point of comparison is the elementary TV show, which I've enjoyed what I've seen of it, which, you know, is just let's do Sherlock Holmes. Like it's a police procedural show with Sherlock Holmes you know, Lucy Liu is Watson and it's set contemporary, but it's still like Sherlock Holmes is prickly. Watson is uh, his nice companion, nicer companion, and they're solving mysteries mm-hmm. versus the Sherlock show 
that tried to be serialized and tried to turn Sherlock into a superhero. And it's a <laughs> very annoying Stephen Moffat, you know, whole thing of like, oh, we everything has to be big twists and big review. And it sucks and it's boring. and It's <laughs> not compelling because like Sherlock Holmes is just a, an inherently compelling formula. Don't don't mess with it too much. And you're fine. Even yep. something like Clueless a movie you and I both greatly enjoy. Without a clue. Without a clue. Thank you. That's yes, a totally Clueless different a movie. <laughs> I always make that mistake. Uh, but without this is Emma, not Sherlock Holmes. Yes. Yes, I'm aware. <laughs> but uh, without a clue, uh, a forgotten Sherlock Holmes adaptation starring Michael Caine and Ben Kingsley. Yeah. Where the bit is. Watson is actually the smart one and Sherlock Holmes is an idiot and they have he's to, just an actor he hired. They have to keep up the ruse. Yep. Even that follows basically the Sherlock Holmes formula. You know, there's a there's an idiot. There's a there's a prickly guy who's super smart and, you know, they stop a crime by Moriarty like it just works that you really don't need to do too much to change it. And they certainly don't hear. Yeah. Which is good. The apartment is full of very strange things while they're waiting and suddenly Basil arrives. But you don't know it's him at first. Yeah, you think it's an outdated cultural depiction. (laughs) (laughs) But it's just a costume. (laughs) Yeah, he was just in yellow face. He was just dressed up. as. It was a mask. It was a mask. At least it's not just face paint. It's two seconds. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's he's darting around. He's messing with all his Rube Goldberg machines and he's playing with a gun. Yes. And not paying attention to anything anyone else is saying. And then when his super high energy. Yeah. When his experiment doesn't work out, when it's not what he'd hoped, he crashes. He's like, no, dread another dead end. And then he's like slumping off and sits in his chair and. Takes out his violin with his shaky hand and he's so sad. And then finally, Olivia gets to say, ask, hey, my daddy's gone missing. Can you please help me find him? And he's like, no, it's not my problem. Go get your mom. Mom status. Olivia doesn't have a mother. And then he's like and realizes he made a mistake. But he's still not really into it until she explains that her dad was kidnapped by Fidget. Not that she knows his name. But yeah, but she describes the bat and he's like, oh, did the bat have a crippled wing? And she's like, yes. And then he's like, oh, it could only be Fidget, the sidekick or whoever he describes him of my nemesis, Professor Radigan. And he has like a framed picture of Radigan in his house. And the experiment he was doing, you know, he says something about like he was within my grasp and you just get that he's totally obsessed with Radigan uh, as Radigan is obsessed with him. Yes, because now after this whole reveal of what Basil tells us about Radigan, We are immediately transported to Radigan's hideout where we get to see him. He lives in a wine barrel. Cool. Yep. And we get to find out why he's kidnapped Flaversham. He's got him working on a giant robot. And he's introduced in shadow. He looks kind of monstrous. But then he steps forward and he's doing Vincent Price and he's so smooth and suave and and so He's he's totally kind and, you know, not really, of course, because as soon as Flaversham is like, no, I won't help you with your evil scheme. And he breaks the robot. Then, you know, 
the gloves come off and he's like, you will. Right. He's going to kidnap Olivia. And, you know, if you don't do what I ask, she's going to get killed. And again, the quality and tightness of the storytelling here, where this scene introduces Radigan, introduces that he needs Flaversham to build something. Right. And even kind of shows you what that something is. Although if you're watching the movie for the first time, you probably won't guess. You can tell it's a robot, but you don't know why. Right. Explains why he needs to get Olivia in a way that's an interesting character moment for both people in the scene. It just works. Yep. And then Fidget is given a list of all the things he needs to go pick up. Tools, gears, girl, meaning Olivia, and uniforms. And I really like, you know, you see it more later than here. You know, I complained about Creeper and in general, the trope of like, oh, this super smart villain has the dumbest henchman ever. Yeah. Fidget is not dumb. He's He's, not. He's funny, but he is a competent henchman. You see why Radigan trusts him with stuff, even though he's kind of a drunk seemingly and and kind of goofy at times. But he's not completely worthless. He does get all four of the things on that list. He does. (laughs) Uh, And then is, of course, my favorite scene, like in a movie. This is it. Number one. Not quite, but close. <laughs> I I, uh, I love this scene. This is the world's greatest criminal mind. Yep. Sung by Radigan and his gang. Great song. The character animation on Radigan is so good. He has so many funny faces yeah. and movements and stuff. It's very expressive. I always realize when I watch this, most of the cards from Villainous, which if you don't know what we're talking about, we've mentioned it in the past. It's this Disney board game that's really good. And if you're a fan of Disney we and board games, we highly recommend it. But like all of the card art and stuff from that, 90% of it just comes from this scene. Yeah. Like where he's <laughs> posing with the treasure or, you know, swooshing his cape out. Like it's <laughs> so much fun. And Price is having so much fun with the voice He's having so much fun with the song. And again, getting to the darkness, like there's a line in the song about all the widows and orphans he's drowned. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Funny, but scary. It's that perfect bullseye that Vincent Price hit for his entire career, like without fail. Mm -hmm. Nobody else would have been as good. Yes. One of his henchmen looks like Bill the Lizard from Alice in Wonderland. We don't know why one of them's a lizard. Everybody else is a mouse, but one of them's a lizard. Okay, whatever. I assume it's so they could reuse animation, but like, and there's a few places in this. We we neglected to mention also, actually, I think it's later, I guess, that we see that uh, Basil has Merlin's green tube as part <laughs> of his Rube Goldberg machine, his tube full of green whatever. I think that's reused animation as well. But here's the thing. We're not like reusing Baloo in this movie. We're reusing like if you've been watching all these movies back to back, you remembered that Merlin has the green tube. Otherwise, you would never remember. (laughs) And of course, this song is interrupted by Bartholomew, who uh, you have long maintained is totally set up by his friends. He is because, of course, they're singing along the chorus, you know, Radigan, oh, Radigan. Um, they sing the chorus a couple different ways. You know, the rest fall in line. Um, but this time they sing Rattigan, your tops, and that's that. To Rattigan, to Rattigan. And then Bartholomew chimes in with, to Rattigan, the world's greatest rat. <gasps> like Rattigan just freezes. Yep. And then he's upset. And now we get Rattigan's motivation, which is that 
he wants to be a mouse. He wants to be treated as a mouse, even though he is so obviously a rat. Yep, he's got a rat's big old tail, and he's so much bigger than all the other mice. Right, there's some kind of implied, maybe hardship, or maybe he's self-conscious, but he is this monstrous thing, and he always manages to just keep it at bay. And and this, you know, really makes that subtext textual, and, uh, you know, all the other thugs are talking about, like, you're not a rat, you're a mouse, a big mouse. And this is another idea they have that is so good. Uh, one of the ideas they have with Radigan that's good is he's a rat who wants to be a mouse. The other great idea is they were like, he should have a pet cat like Blofeld, you know, classic villain thing. And then they were like, <laughs> well, OK, but a cat would be, you know, so much bigger than him. What smaller animal could he have? And then they're like, Wait, what if he just has a big cat? <laughs> Which is so funny. And so he has an extremely big cat. So he rings a little bell to summon Felicia, his cat. And of course she comes and um, she eats Bartholomew. Bartholomew is dead. <laughs> dead, dead, dead. It happens off screen, but you can hear it because he's like still singing along. It and barely <laughs> happens off screen. This is a named character getting killed in a Disney movie. I think it's really good and effective. Again, this is the this is the good kind of darkness where you're like, this villain is a legit villain. Yep. He's not a good guy. He's not just the Horned King where it's like, he looks scary. Right. And then he just kind of walks around and does nothing. <laughs> like, no, killing people. Yep. Yep. Killing his own henchmen. Again, the fact that he has a name, I think, is the most shocking part to me. It's right. not just henchmen, too. He, you know, he does have the line that I love to quote of, oh, Bartholomew, I'm afraid you've gone and upset me. And, you know, he's he's so upset. He's not going to get eaten. The bell is a cool device to summon the cat. It it has this creepy... It's creepy. Yep. It's funny. Oh, it's so effective. Bartholomew is so drunk, by the way. That's why he doesn't realize what's going on. Right. So he's not even scared. Like, the others are scared. <laughs> he does happy, at least. <laughs> right. And then immediately afterwards, Radigan's going on about, like, Daddy's little honey bun. Yes, he's like cooing to the kitty. And then as you were singing, he's forcing everyone to sing a song about how great he is. And one of my favorite details is that there are two henchmen who are juggling like, oh, we must have some jugglers yep. in the crew yep. in case we want to do any juggling crimes. <laughs> and then, of course, it's like a big show-stopping number, you know, with yes. all of the crazy things going on. It's pretty funny. But the henchmen have these, like, rictus grins. They yeah. are terrified for their lives. I'm trying to remember, isn't it at the end of this scene, though, where, or is it in a different part where he's talking about Basil and how he doesn't like him? They That's halfway through the song. He stops and makes halfway a comment okay. about... That's right, that's right. He has a big old thing about Basil, and he doesn't have a picture of Basil. He has, like, a voodoo doll of Basil that's all stuck with pins. <laughs> It is very funny that they both have a representation of each other in their house. <laughs> and then we go back to uh, Baker Street. Right. Because there is a scary bolt of lightning that shows us fidget in the window. <gasps> oh. And so they go chasing out to figure out if they can find him. Uh, Basil keeps getting Olivia's last name wrong. 
She's kind of annoyed by this. Basil, they get him just right where he is an annoying jerk to some extent, but I still find him funny and likable. They they hit the balance. Yeah, and, and he does improve. Yes. Like, he doesn't stay. If he stayed throughout the whole movie as rude and obnoxious and annoying as he is at the very beginning, you wouldn't be able to stand it. But he does kind of... Like, catch himself and realize, ooh, maybe I should, you know, think about what I am saying or doing and not be like that. <laughs> yep. They just get everything just right. Yep. And they give you just... An, it's like Robin Hood, where it's like economy of storytelling, constantly giving you just enough, you know, just the bare bones of story that you can fill in the rich world around. Yep. So, of course, to find... Fidget to track him down. Once Dawson finds Fidget's hat, they have to get Sherlock Holmes hound. Toby will lead them around. And uh, Sherlock Holmes here is briefly uh, played by archival footage of Basil Rathbone, who is already dead. Yep. I did want to say, funnily enough, we made so many jokes in the uh, Ichabod and Mr. Toad episode <laughs> about Basil Rathbone uh, feeling like he was second fiddle to <laughs> Bing Crosby. Right. Funnily enough, I don't know if you saw this. Originally, the model they were going to use for Basil, the character, was they were going to base him off of Bing Crosby. (laughs) That's really funny. So even the character who's named for me, named after (laughs) me, is going to be played by a simulacrum of Bing Crosby. What is it with that guy? That is really funny. They didn't end up going with that image, I think. I am a respected actor (laughs) of stage and screen. I don't deserve to be constantly upstaged by a guy who goes (laughs) ba-da-da-da. Bo-bo-bo-bo. See, I can do it too. It's not that impressive. I'm turning over in my grave. Oh, that's funny. And uh, Toby gets along best with Olivia... And for some reason, he doesn't like Dawson at all. (laughs) Olivia isn't just like the girl and the damsel. She has her own comedic games. She's super nice. She's stealing all of the crumpets as they're leaving uh, 221 and a half Baker Street. And then she gives them some of them to Toby. It is really funny, her convincing Basil to take her along, you know, because you're taking a child on a quest to find the bad guys, but... Anyway, Dawson has his own comedic game as we have, you know, the thrill of the hunt. And for some reason, Toby just hates Dawson. It's true. No explanation. It's just a thing. So they chase off into the into the night and end up at a human sized toy shop where Fidget is stripping the toy soldiers of their uniforms. He's got everything but the girl. And then it's this pretty tense, pretty exciting little scene where, you know, they're stalking through the dark, slightly spooky toy shop looking for clues, but Fidget knows they're there, and it's kind of a cat and mouse game. The toys look very creepy. And as Dawson finds the list, which is the clue they need, Fidget activates all the toys at once, including a Dumbo toy, so that they're yeah. making noise. <laughs> and uh, uh, Olivia's lured to this uh, baby doll in its crib, but it's actually Fidget! Oh no, he's got her! And then he manages to escape uh, after a big old chase, of course, through the through the toy store with all kinds of interesting things going on. 
Basil almost catches him, but doesn't quite. And then Basil loses his temper at Dawson. Actually, as Fidget gets away, I like how he hums a little song. You know, I got the tools. I got the girl. I got the gears. Blah, 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 blah. blah. And he's just humming a little too. <laughs> right. And this is really fun action. It kind of reminded me of like those Looney Tunes that would be like uh, the the one that was all books or whatever, like book review. I forget what it's called. I'm sure somebody knows, which is like, as I said, in the rescuers, the thing they get about mice that's interesting. I think the reason we had a, you know, mice renaissance in animation <laughs> at this time, it's the scale, right? It's, it's all about little things in big places. That's just inherently cool and, and compelling and interesting. It wouldn't be as interesting if it was like Mickey Mouse's world where it's mouse sized mouse right. things. It's seeing the mice interacting with human sized things. And what did they use them for in their world? Right. And so we do have Basil soften a bit uh, because Dawson is is crying. He's very upset about, you know, lose Olivia being kidnapped. Yeah. So Basil first loses his temper at Dawson and shouts at him. And then he realizes Dawson is actually, you know, quite broken up about this. So he he's like he apologizes and he's actually much kinder. And then they're trying to think, what do we do next? How do we track him from here? Dawson realizes he has the list. And Basil's like, aha, yes, the game is afoot. We need, we can, isn't that where he says it or is it later? Uh, it doesn't matter. He does say it, I of thought course. he said it earlier, but yeah, he says, he says all the things. He says the game's afoot. He says elementary, my dear Dawson. We, we get all the hits. Yep. So then they head back to Baker Street with the list. And then we see what Radigan is up to now again. We just keep going back and forth. Yep, they're building some kind of a creepy robot. Flaversham and Olivia reunited, but just... You know, long enough for the threat <laughs> right again to dangle that. Yeah, to threaten him to dangle that over his head so he'll keep working. And when he finds out that Basil is on the case because of Fidget, he almost freaks out. It's this great moment where he's like growling and snarling and he's about to go full rat mode, but he stops himself, catches himself. We're foreshadowing what's to come. Yeah. You see again the, the animal breaking out, but not quite, not yet. And so I think this is super effectively done where he leads Fidget off screen and is talking about like, oh, I'm not mad at you. Everything's fine. And then there's a and beat of silence. Yes, there's a beat of silence. And then ding, a ding, a ding. <laughs> and, you know, like Fidget might get eaten. There's no rules. Yep. But he doesn't because he realizes that actually Basil coming to us might not be so bad. Perfect opportunity for a trap. He knows that Basil will use the list to figure out where the hideout is. And so he decides to lay a trap and then he tells Felicia to let Fidget go. She's disappointed. Mm -hmm. Fidget is <laughs> barely alive. He's appointed. Yeah. Uh, and Basil doesn't do a lot of like the Sherlock Holmes-esque, basically magic detective work in this movie. But this is, you get enough of it that if you're looking for that, like I am, you're like, I'm satisfied. And this is... You know, one of the main instances of it where he's doing a bunch of ridiculous chemistry and he realizes they're looking for a seedy pub where the sewer meets the water. Yep. So he pulls out a map, finds the place. And this turns out to be the rat trap. Yep. And they're wearing disguises. Basil's disguise is quite good. Uh, Dawson is wearing a too small Smee costume. <laughs> yes, he's totally wearing Mr. Smee. Basil is dressed like a uh, contemporary sailor and uh, Dawson is dressed like a funny pirate. 
for dinner theater production. <laughs> I feel like I've talked about this before on the podcast. Funny disguises just crack me up, apparently. Yep. Everyone in the pub eyes them suspiciously. Yep. And Dawson is not very good at fitting in. Not uh, at Basil's all. pretty good. Uh, we, of course, have to have this scene in the tavern where you make everyone gasp, in this case, by invoking the name of Radigan. Yeah. Meanwhile, on stage, first we have an octopus tap dancer and juggler. Right. And everyone's bored. Then there's a lizard and a frog unicycling who everyone <laughs> hates. They don't even get to do their full act before they're booed off. And then we have the Let Me Be Good To You song. Miss Kitty Mouse. Which is, uh, <laughs> I, I will just say this is a, a little more risque than you would expect for a Disney movie. It's true. Again, it's uh, we're talking about how the animators want to get a little more adult with these movies. This is such a moment and it's a good song. And I think that's pretty much all we can say about it. Yep. They do order some drinks. Their drinks end up getting spiked. Yes, our heroes are drinking alcohol as well. Can you believe that? Well, (laughs) there's also a ton of smoking in this movie. We haven't talked about it, but... There's just a ton. Smoking, gun firing, all the stuff they were cutting out of their old shorts at this time. You know, we talked about Make Mine Music getting censored around this time, but uh, the new movies could do. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, so uh, Basil doesn't drink his drink because he figures it out. Dawson, however, gets drunk. Not really sure what their drinks were spiked with because it's not like he ends up passing out or poison. No, or... it, they say that he's drugged and it just seems like he gets drunk very quickly. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's a strange And to what fit. end? Not clear. Exactly. That's my point. But it doesn't matter. Uh, Fidget walks through and, of course, Basil sees him and is trying to figure out where he's going so he can follow him. And then, of course... As other stuff is going on, the bar fight breaks out. You can't be in a bar without bar fight breaking out. Yep, that's that's just this movie in a nutshell. It's like we're just hitting all the hits. Uh-huh. They escape the bar fight. They climb up a sewer pipe. They follow Fidget to the secret lair. Yep. And they see uh, Olivia, who was trapped in a bottle earlier. But actually, it's Fidget and drag again. <laughs> yep. They get you twice with that gag. And I love, I love that everyone yells surprise. And there's like banners. Welcome, Basil. <laughs> and I love Betty. that it has surprise party energy. Yes. And Radigan's talking about, I just love how whenever Radigan and Basil are talking to each other, they're just, I love their banter and how they're both just trying to own each other. And Radigan's like, I expected you 15 minutes earlier. And laughs at his disguise. Yep. Everybody's mocking and laughing at Basil. He's embarrassed. He feels very upset. The the, the big line here is Radigan talking about how the superior mind has triumphed. And Basil takes that very personally. And then we see they are being tied into a mouse trap. And Radikin talks about how he couldn't decide how to kill Basil, so he decided to do them all. Close runner-up for my favorite scene is... Uh, I, I, the other one is better because it has more Radigan posing and dancing. Yeah. But I love, A, this ridiculous Rube Goldberg machine with 14 <laughs> different weapons attached to it. Yes. B, the fact that this is triggered... By a human-sized record, Radigan somehow recorded with a backing band to be like, I'm going to write a mean, sarcastic song. Yes. Goodbye so soon for Basil, for my arch enemy to listen to as he does. Like, this is the kind of Disney villain stuff 
the just movie villain stuff in general that I love so much, where it's so ridiculous and convoluted. And it's also subtly like Basil has all his Rube Goldberg machines in the beginning of the movie. Here we see Redigan also loves Rube Goldberg machines. Again, this all this stuff about how they're like dark mirrors of each other or whatever. This, I think, is my favorite scene from like the surprise party silliness. And then this uh, Rube Goldberg death trap and how they escape it. No, that's the snap, boom, twang, clunk, splat. I wrote it down. <laughs> so good. And they actually have a reason for why Radigan can't stay and watch his trap go off. Because this is so much the the 1960s Batman. Oh, yeah. Why did the villains leave Batman and Robin tied up in their death trap and then go away? They don't explain most of the time. But this they actually say... Because Basil was 15 minutes late, Radigan doesn't have time to stay and watch. Um, But he's leaving a camera that's going to take a picture (laughs) of the splattedness at the end. (laughs) So good. So funny. Don't forget to smile for the camera. And he also, it's important, he says that they have an engagement in Buckingham Palace. And Dawson's like, Buckingham Palace? That's kind of interesting. So Dawson's paying attention. Basil is like... Lost, sunk in the depths of depression and doesn't even care. But it's like, I don't even really need that detail because I'm not that picky about this sort of thing in movies. But it is, it just shows the quality of storytelling that they're like, let's make sure he says he's going to Buckingham Palace so they know where to go later. And let's even make sure we draw Dawson reacting to it so that, you know, you can, if you're wondering, like, how did they know to get there? Well, we have this tiny moment. So then we meet the Mouse Queen, uh, who, of course, is an evil imperialist. And Radigan (laughs) deposing her is uh, very good. And I have no problems with that. Uh, Some of his other, you know, his his widow and orphan drowning, I don't stand by. But, uh, you know, listen, I think we can agree there was very fine people on both sides of the Big Ben caper. So the the guards are quickly replaced with Radigan's henchmen. Oh, I forgot. Radigan leaves on a blimp. Yes, on a cool airship. Yep, little airship of his own. Anyway, they get to the palace. The guards are quickly replaced with Radigan's henchmen in their uniform costumes. And they deliver a gift. And it's the robot queen. I love the design of this thing. I love how janky it is. I love that it has a big silly cord sticking out the back. So that they can have the fake voice coming out of it. They speak into a speaking tube. And it comes out as her actual voice. And you can so tell that it's a robot. But nobody else can. That's the important thing. Well, the the point I made to you is that if people were willing to believe that Prince Philip was a human being, <laughs> they would believe that this robot was a human being. Like, they'd just be like, oh, they're eccentric. It's the royals. <laughs> I did see something that was saying the queen is Queen Mousetoria since it's Victoria. And I was like, OK, now you're getting silly. Dumb. <laughs> Dumb. Quite dumb. The the real queen is dragged off towards Felicia. She's going to get fed to the cat. And Basil is still, you know, totally down the dumps. He's like, I've been totally defeated. Radigan is so much cooler and better than me, which he's totally right about. He probably should just (laughs) let himself die because he'll never be as interesting as Radigan. But 
Dawson uh, manages to to convince him. Uh, sure, you'll never be as cool as Red again, but we <laughs> should probably save this girl and the queen and deal with whatever stuff is going on. And then, of course, he ends it with, and if you're just giving up, why don't we just set off this trap right now? And then he does the best grumpy face. It's so I funny. I just love his, I don't even know how to describe it, his scrunched down, like, mm, I'm so angry at you right now. The, the character animation in this movie is... It's so good. Delightful. And then Basil's like, <laughs> set it off now. And he starts like cackling. Like you're like, Oh my gosh, he's totally snapped. <laughs> <laughs> and then his brain starts working again. And he thinks of a way out of the trap and they, they get out of the trap and he catches both Dawson and Olivia, Olivia. And he's like, smile for the camera. <laughs> this whole movie is so kind of like, I don't know, flamboyant style. He and, and Radigan, they're just like so stylish. They both have style. Yeah. So then they go outside and whistle for Toby, who makes ear stairs for them to climb up onto Toby's back. <laughs> and they race for the palace. Toby, when they get there, chases away Felicia so they can rescue the queen. She is so fat. That cat is so funny looking because she is so fat. It's true. They get a really good design. Meanwhile, Radigan is being introduced as her consort by the Robo Queen. Uh, everyone just knows Radigan on site, which I appreciate. They're like, oh, the Napoleon of crime. Yes. Yes, uh, we should say uh, Radigan is, of course, Professor Radigan. He's a tenured professor. Yes. I imagine it was very hard for him to be a rat in academia. (laughs) Maybe that's, you know, why he turned to crime. And really, who can who can judge Radigan? (laughs) So, of course, as soon as she announces him as her consort, he comes out with a gigantic list of all of the changes he wants to make. Also his outfit. Let's not oh, forget. Yes, don't forget his outfit. He is already dressed in a very fancy kingly outfit with the kingly robe, you know, with the red and the and the white and black spotted trim. Big golden R belt. Yes, and his crown. Very stylish. And he, yes, he has his giant list of demands. The only one we hear being uh, something about uh, going to do extra taxes and all those parasites and sponges, such as the poor, the infirm, the elderly. And the children. <laughs> and the children. So, you know, OK, maybe I don't agree with that part of Radigan's policies, but, you know, he's he's uh, I would still say he's done nothing wrong and we should just let him have whatever he wants because he's very <laughs> cool and I like him. Yeah. When he first says tax the parasitic sponges, my brain actually went to, oh, the rich people doing nothing. Yeah, <laughs> not for nothing. Then you would be sad when Radigan died. They couldn't, you know, just depose him. But uh, no, of course, he is villainous. He is a bad guy. He's done a lot of bad things, drowned a bunch of widows. And uh, Basil, what I love is, again, it's not just that they, you know, defeat all his henchmen, which they do. It's that Basil also has to start talking through the Robo Queen and insulting Radigan. Yes. And he's like, no, no, wait, it's she's losing her mind. And uh, then, of course, Basil calls him a sewer rat. Yes. And so Radigan's like, oh, no. Fidget kind of escapes the, the where they've tied him up and grabs Olivia to take him to Radigan. Radigan takes Olivia hostage so that he can escape in his blimp. Basil has to create a makeshift balloon to follow him. Out of the Union, check. And a bunch of actual balloons. Because, you know, it's the... Uh, 
it's the human queen's jubilee as well. So <laughs> there's all that stuff. Fidget is thrown into the Thames, uh, which I assume he just bounces off of. <laughs> and Radigan and Basil and Olivia crash into Big Ben. And this is where we get this sequence with all the gears that is mostly like there's no music here and there's very little, if any, dialogue. It's mostly silent other than the ticking. It's so cool. It's a pretty brief moment, mm-hmm. but it's so cool. And it's the computer animation used so well because we're contrasting the mathematical perfection of the sets here with Radigan going full rat mode, which he does in this sequence. He finally gives up, gives over to the animal. He does. He just goes, he tears all his clothes. He's just like, you know, chasing. He he doesn't quite look like the rat from Lady and the Tramp, but definitely closer. (laughs) Snarling and growling. He only says one more line after this, which is after he's been scratching Basil and, you know, seems to be doing some, some real damage. He yells, I've won. But in fact, he has not quite won because the clock strikes And the two of them fall off the clock. Basil managing to grab part of the blimp on his way down, the propeller and pedal to control it. But Radigan falls to his doom, presumably. Yep. They think Basil has died as well, but he manages to use the propeller and pedal thing to briefly fly back up to where they are. But there's a, you know, a moment of, oh no, Basil. Yes, Radigan, uh, uh, a villain death. You know, we talked about how you don't always see too many of those in Disney, but, you know, he has been established. I've been joking about how he's right about everything. He has been established (laughs) to be a serial killer. So, you know, it's it's probably for the best. It's true. The only disappointment is that uh, this presumably leaves out any possibility of a sequel or a spinoff or a, Remake or a writer reboot, but we'll get there. You don't ever see the body, so you can always bring him back. Moriarty got brought back, so, you know. True, true, true. Sherlock Holmes got killed off more than once and kept getting brought back. These things happen. These things happen. It's okay. You know, then we get our, our classic Disney ending of wrapping everything up. Basil and Dawson are honored by the Queen. The Flavishims leave. Basil admits that he likes Olivia mm-hmm. uh, and it's and Dawson's going to leave as well. And, and you can tell Basil doesn't really want that to happen. But then a grown woman uh, shows up who's in trouble, which a mouse woman, a mouse woman. But <laughs> do you know who this mouse woman is? I do not know who this mouse woman is. She is the original design for Olivia. <laughs> so originally, Olivia was going to be a grown woman. Yeah. But it was actually Ron Miller who suggested that the character should be a little girl, someone that the audience can feel sorry for, someone who kids can relate to more, which, you know, normally I complain about why are we adding a kid character just for the sake of adding a kid character. In this case, I think it's actually a really good calculation. Yeah, I think it actually works here. Yeah, it means you can be, you know, sympathetic for her more immediately. It's what we talked about in The Rescuers, where it's like, where well, yeah, of course I'm sad a girl is in trouble. Mm-hmm. And better than The Rescuers, Olivia is a character. Of course, though, they're not going to scrap animation they've done on this budget. So this, this grown woman is... 
the alternate design for Olivia Flaversham. Yeah, and she comes in and Basil introduces Dawson as his assistant who helps him on all his cases. And Dawson's like, oh, I can stay. <laughs> and there's nice uh, last bit of Dawson narration where he's talking about from that time on, we did a whole bunch of mysteries together, but I will always remember that first one where I met Basil of Baker Street, the great mouse detective. <laughs> yeah. And the end. We get the words the end for it again, which we hadn't on the last movie. And we get the end credits with end credits music. And partway through the end credits, we get our first appearance of a crappy credits cover of Goodbye So Soon. It's not that bad, but Eisner was obsessed with getting like Disney songs, Disney musical movie songs. He wanted them to like chart, right? He right. wanted them to be pop hits. Yeah. And so that's why after this, I, I can't remember who's doing it here, but it's not someone of super uh, significant note. But after this, like, let's get a modern pop star to cover one of the songs in the credits. And then that song will be the song we release as a single. And it's always worse. Yeah, And it's partially the fault of... Chris Montan, who was the, I'm not sure what his actual title was at the time, but he was in charge of the Disney, of the music for Disney movies, both live action and animated. And he also was working to try to get the songs on the charts. Like he was on board for this. He came on with Disney just before um, Eisner came on and, you know, Katzenberg and all that. And he thought it was, you know, just a sleepy little company. And then, uh, of course, immediately it was <laughs> being changed up and turned around. And he had a lot more responsibility than he expected to have. And yeah, he was totally on board with the music being that way and trying to have a version of the song that could be played on the radio. But it's the start of the trend. <laughs> yes, which is a, a trend that you and I mostly hate. Yep. Uh, I will say sometimes when it's just a new unrelated pop song in the credits, it can be okay. I'm thinking of one example in particular we'll get to. But when it's the pop cover of a song from the moot, when it's like that tale as old as time and you're like no get out stop. <laughs> uh, for some reason the beauty and the beast one sticks out in my head is particularly annoying <laughs> so that's the end of the movie there's not much for sequels spin-offs remakes rides and reboots yeah i actually don't have anything so take it away well basil and radigan were meet and greet characters in the parks briefly to promote the film but they haven't been seen since about 2004. Did you see a picture of them? Boo. I did not see a picture of them. Let me share a picture of them with you. Just give me a sec. I want to meet Red again. <laughs> uh, something I saw was saying that maybe uh, he was a little too creepy. <laughs> Kids were getting scared. Yeah, they're both a little bit creepy. Basil's <laughs> head is too big because he has to have human head proportions. Right, he has to have a human head inside that Basil head. And he has to have the extra big head they do for all the Disney costumes. Radigan's head is also too big. They should have made the Radigan costume bigger. Yeah. Uh, and he is a little he is a little creepy. I don't know. I guess I expected where we've seen some dire costumes in sequel spinoffs. Yeah, but this is the 80s where they were getting they were doing better at the costumes in the 80s. You know, they should bring Radigan back. I think he'd be a hit, especially because they could make the costume look a lot better now. Yeah, it's true. However, there is a reference to Basil of Baker Street in 
a show that you love. Oh, so Darkwing Duck, I'm guessing? Yes. In Darkwing Duck, the statue that they hit that causes the chairs to flip and they go into the secret hideout is Basil. Yes, that's right. (laughs) Of course, how could I not love this then? Does kind of feel, I don't know, there's some similar energy. Yeah. But I feel like... You could totally do a Basil Baker Street. This is one of the few things where I'm like, do a TV show, do a sequel. Basil and Dawson solving more mysteries. Obviously, Vincent Price is dead now, and unfortunately, so. Yep. But, you know, you could get some, like, Marisol Marsh has a, could play Rat again, and it wouldn't be as good, because nothing is, but it's it, it would be fine. It would be fun. I, if that was a Disney Plus show that got announced, I'd watch it. You know, and I found a like a concept for bringing something back. One of the Disney animators or someone was saying they pitched this as an idea, a reboot of Rescue Rangers, the Chippendales Rescue Rangers, with ties to both the rescuers and Great Mouse Detectives. So Olivia was, you know, trained up by Basil And she founded the Rescue Aid Society. And then, of course, that's what Bernard and Bianca are part of. And Chip and Dale go and find an old Bernard and try to join the Rescue Aid Society. And he's like, no, chipmunks can't join. You're not mice. And so they have to make their new group called the Rescue Rangers. But then they're trying to solve a mystery of a plan that was created by Radigan that was then stolen by the Rescue Rangers villain or like is being enacted by their villain Fat Cat in the modern times. <laughs> As I said, I would like, let's do more rescuers. And now I've said, let's do more Great Mouse Detective. Yeah, why not cross them over? They have kind of a similar energy. This is like, you know, an elevator pitch basically is all that somebody right. was presenting, um, which I thought was quite amusing. And yeah, that that could be fun. Right. Other than like they use the 1800 setting for flavor, mm-hmm. but it's not like this is a story that could only really have happened in the 1800s. Right. And in fact, that's another thing I, I love about it is the steampunky like robot stuff. Now, uh, I did remember and I just looked this up. I said I didn't have anything, but <laughs> there are rumors of now, these have never been like fully announced by Disney and they, you know, even if they had, they announced so much until it happens, it doesn't happen. Correct. But there's rumors that uh, come from fairly reliable sources of a Delarm, of a great mass detective Delarm. So it would obviously all the characters, uh, what they said was the mice in the film will still be animated. However, everything else is said to be live action. Which means what? Like you took a picture of a real chair or whatever? That idea is obviously very bad, especially because the way they do the like Delarm animal movies is to make them super photorealistic. Imagine the great mouse detective, but it's a photorealistic mouse and rat. And that's that's just a nightmare. That yeah, sucks. but see, real rats and mice don't walk on their hind legs. Like these characters do. Right. So they'd probably do some weird half and half thing like the Lady and the Tramp one where they have like human mouths. It's yeah. But at least in Lady and the Tramp, the they walk like dogs, you know, I agree. It would be horrible. I I hope they don't. Uh, I know normally what we like to do is uh, rate these movies numerically (laughs) uh, on a scale of one to ten. But just this once, why don't we instead ask each other two questions? The first of which being, would you recommend this movie? 
I would recommend this movie. I'm assuming you would also recommend this movie. You've talked so much about how you love it. Of course I recommend this movie. It's a I mean, it's it's such a delight. Like I said, it's it's so well done. It's not perfect. You know, it's it's a little cheap. Uh, it's a little sometimes it's almost too fast paced, but it's just a delicious slice of Disney goodness with such a great villain, such great characters, good jokes, good music. Uh, there's really nothing specific to ding it on. Yep. Now, would you show this movie to a child? I think as long as you know they're not likely to be scared by the Radigan stuff, especially towards the end where he goes all feral and wild, some small children might be scared by that. But overall, I think it would be fine to show to children. I feel like this is a movie I could recommend to like, you know, a 10 year old or around that range. I wouldn't necessarily show it to, you know, like a younger child like Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They do. They do some jump scares with fidget, you know, the rah. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, the the scene in the rat trap. You may not want uh, your kids to see without context, uh, you know, just I would watch it first again in 70 minutes. You got plenty of time. Watch it yourself, then watch it with your kids. And now you've seen a good movie twice. <laughs> um, but depending on the child and depending on the age of the child. Yeah, it's not uh, it's not like a hard no. My final thought on this movie is that we talked about Winnie the Pooh kind of being a silver era movie that snuck into the bronze era. This kind of feels like a renaissance movie that snuck into the bronze era. I mean, it's a little bit Musker and Clements, the directors who ushered in the renaissance and it, you know, has a higher quality of animation and storytelling and so on. It feels like there's hope that they're going to turn it around. Yeah. Which, of course, we know they do. But, you know, (laughs) you know, and again, like we talked about how Roger Ebert and other critics were like the great the Black Cauldron. I think they're finally turning it around. Fox and the Hound. I think they're like every movie was like, I think this is the good one. This so obviously is the good one. Yeah. Like compared to the stuff we've been watching, it's an American masterpiece. (laughs) But the reason this isn't really the true start of the Renaissance era is because there's one more movie we have to talk about, which is Oliver and Company, which we'll be discussing two weeks from now. (laughs) Surprise. Surprise. It's our bonus episode. Uh, In case you forgot the introductory episode, we will be doing two bonus episodes. We each picked one of a Disney animated movie that is not technically part of the animated canon, but that's just something that we wanted to talk about. And next week is my choice. I didn't see anyone guess this, even though there were clues. If you knew where to look, if you listen to past episodes, if you look at our uh, cover art for the Bronze Era that uses the font of 1987's Absolute masterpiece. <laughs> one of the best movies ever. The Brave Little Toaster. Ah, uh, uh, we get to do the Brave Little Toaster episode. I could not be more excited personally. But mom, what do you think of that movie? Worthless. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> That's just my first thought when you ask the question. I have to sing that bit from the song. But I think that Brave Little Toaster is the best movie ever to come out of Crazy Ernie's Amazing Emporium of Total Bargain Madness! It's madness! <laughs> <laughs> Man, I'm already, I'm so hyped. Uh, I will say, though, I do want to say this for reals. I'm going to preempt the end of that episode and say, I do not consider this a kid's movie. Very challenging themes. Mm-hmm. Very scary stuff. 
Uh, if you are like, you know, you're watching along with us, you know, maybe you and your kids are listening to the podcast. Parents strongly encourage you to at the very least watch this one beforehand and then decide if you want to show it to your kids. You know, our episode will still be as kid friendly as ever. But the Brave Little Toaster is, again, in my opinion, not a kid's movie. Would not recommend to a <laughs> child uh, just out of hand. It's also not very easy to, to find. It's actually pretty easy to find uh, if you just sort of Google and yeah, some yeah, results yeah, will yeah. come up. And But it's not on Disney Plus. It's not streaming anywhere like Disney Plus. I, I'd love to keep talking about it, but I'll save it for next week's five-hour exploration of the Brave Old Toaster, which Mom will not get a word in edgewise. Until then, I'm me. I'm Mom. And it all started with a rat. A mouse! A mouse! <laughs> a big mouse. 